1311, uh, technically 1311 is where we kind of stopped last time. Um, chapter 13, 74, yeah, okay. So I haven't had a chance to check in with uh, Ken Rapp. Does anybody? Or, or what's, is Ron, Ron's home, right? Is he? How's he? Is he okay? I'm going to see Ron tomorrow about 1 o'clock. Okay. And uh, I saw Ken and Emily up at uh, Tim's yesterday. At where? Tim's, Coney Island. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so he's yeah, getting out okay? He's, he's still getting along, but, you know, he's not doing good. Mm. So. Was he, you saw him setting down, though, right? Yeah, I saw him and Emily walk in. Okay. Walked in under his own power. Was he able to cane? Did he have a cane or had a, yeah. a, a, a walker? Yeah. He had a stick. A stick, okay. Yeah. Ron's in a wheelchair. Yes. Ron's in a wheelchair. That's, he was when I saw him last. Yeah. But his mind was very good. Yeah. Really good. It was, seemed like the old Ron when I saw him. All right, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time we've had this semester to look into the Word to 1 Corinthians. And uh, we're thankful that we, uh, one of the blessings we have in the age in which we live is that we're able to have the Word of God in our own language and we're all able to have a copy and read it, <clears throat> but we know that puts a great responsibility on us to be familiar and to understand, to know, and to try to assimilate into our lives the truths that you put there. So help us tonight as we finish up the class that we'll be able to continue to um, make progress in our own understanding and may the Spirit of God give us hearts of obedience uh, in the days ahead. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at chapter 13, uh, the superiority of love, and uh, he's talked about the necessity of love and the character of love, and right now we are looking at uh, 8 through 13, where we stopped last time, which is the uh, permanence of love. Uh, and so the point here is that in contrast to the spiritual gifts that are so valued in Corinth, especially tongues, but also prophecy and knowledge, uh, these, these gifts will be gone. They will, there's coming a time when they will end, as we'll see in just a few minutes here. And... Uh, um, and so um, love will continue, as he says. Love never fails. Prophecies will, he says in verse 8. Tongues will be stilled and so forth. Um, we know in part, verse 9, but when the completeness comes, uh, that which is in part disappears. Um, uh, let me see here. Uh, we didn't cover 1310, do we? We didn't actually talk about 13... Huh? 13.9. Okay, well I had down here at 13.11, but it probably was at 13.9, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was at uh, 13.9. I think it was, that's right, yeah. 13.9. Well, I don't have 13.10 with me, so I'm, I need to get a copy of the notes over here. <laughs> Somehow I got, I got mixed up here or something when I was doing this. 
because I knew we hadn't covered, I didn't think we had covered 1310, which is this, you know, controversial. We don't have it in our book. We don't have it. We jumped from 9 to 11. No, 9 and 10 are together there. Oh, I see it. I see it. I thought it was just too controversial. Yeah. Well, maybe I do have it. No. 156, 157, 158, 159. Oh, I see. Yeah, I do. Okay. Yeah, I guess I do have it. I'm sorry. Yeah, I guess I'm losing my mind here. Um, so, yeah. 13.9 said, we know in part... And in, we prophesy in part, but when we, completeness comes, that which is in part disappears. And I said, I'm going to discuss that completeness um, just further on the notes here. So let's go ahead and look at that after we get through verse 11. So 10 and, this 9, 10, and 11 go together. Um, verse 11, he says, When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away the ways of childhood behind me. So I said if verse 11 confirms by way of an appeal to personal experience what has been said about the incomplete and partial character of revelation that comes from the miraculous gifts. The point being that these belong to the state of childhood, but when manhood comes, the completeness, verse 10, they will no longer be needed and so will be put away. The contrast is between limited understanding versus full understanding. Verse 12, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. For now I know in part, then I will know fully, even as I am fully known. So this illustration of verse 11, with the 4 in verse 12, is now further explained. What the childhood is to manhood so the present life now is to the future time when completeness comes. So these are all related. So when completeness comes, that which is in part disappears. He compares the present time to like childhood and then we have manhood. And so now in the present time, we're seeing through a reflection in the mirror. Then we will see face to face. I just know partly now, but then I'll know more fully, I'll know, she'll know fully, even as I am fully known. Uh, so as I say here, um, the reference to seeing only a reflection in a mirror describes the experience in antiquity of viewing oneself in a polished bronze or copper mirror that at best gave distorted reflection. Bronze mirrors were manufactured in Corinth. Paul's point is that our present knowledge is not perfect, not perfectly clear, it is incomplete. I say now Paul says that our knowledge is in part, just as he explained in verse 9, we know in part. The miraculous gifts only give partial knowledge. The completeness of verse 9 is now described as, a time, as being a time when Paul shall know fully, even as he is fully known. Paul is probably alluding to the Old Testament references of speaking of, of, of that speak of God, seeing God face to face. You know, these, some of these references in Genesis 32, 30, uh, Jacob uh, called the place Peniel because he said, it's because I see God face to face. Uh, Exodus 33, 11, the Lord said, I speak to Moses face to face. And Deuteronomy 34.10, Moses was the only one who knew him sort of face to face. So that may be what the reference here is, uh, we shall see him face to face. Uh, Paul does not mean that at the time he will be granted omniscience, an attribute of God, but at the coming of Christ, he will no longer be depraved and suffer the effects of sin. Thus, without this limitation, he will be able to understand God and His Word so as to know Himself more truly as God knows Him. 
In the meantime, all our knowing is indirect and incomplete, even with the miraculous gifts of revelation, including tongues. I say there's debate here about what Paul means in verse 10 when the completeness comes. But when the completeness comes, what is in part disappears. What he's describing here in the following verses, verse 11 and 12, I'll know, you know, I shall fully, I shall know fully even as I'm fully known. This is this completeness. It's been argued that it refers to the completion of the canon of Scripture, which would have been uh, with the writing of the book of Revelation at the end of the first century. That's never been appealing to me, as I say here, but this seems difficult to me to harmonize with Paul's statement that at that time we shall know fully even as we are fully known. That doesn't seem to be true of the completion of the canon. It seems best, as I have alluded, to understand that completeness is a reference to the time and state of affairs associated with the coming of Christ and our coming into His presence. The main argument for seeing a reference to the completion of the canon is that it provides a strong argument for cessationism, the belief that all the miraculous gifts practiced by the early church have been suspended for the duration of the present age. However, to me, it seems doubtful that the Corinthians would be able to understand the completeness as a reference to the completion of the New Testament canon of Scripture. So, uh, you know, those of us who believe that these miraculous gifts ceased at the end of the apostolic age, uh, many have appealed to this verse, this passage, because this would, you know, if it, if it was talking about the completion of the canon, then it would say these gifts, prophesying part and all this kind, that these gifts, they're going to cease when the, com when the complete comes, uh, when the completion comes in verse 10. When the completion comes, what is in part? So the idea would be when the canon is closed and finished, then, then uh, these gifts are gone. So it's an argument against the Pentecostals, in a sense. It's, you know, it's kind of an argument that's, that's used. And I'm, I'm, I'm a cessationist. Our church holds to cessationism. Uh, but I just have never been convinced that this verse uh, really supports that view. This sounds like um, more like the coming of Christ. It sounds like the end of the age to me uh, when I read this. So I've never been persuaded by that. Now I'm going to give some arguments here for cessationism in just a moment here. Because I believe in, I believe that these miraculous gifts did cease with the apostolic age. Verse 13, And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So I say, and now, that is, in the present age, faith, hope, and love remain. The triad of faith, hope, and love appear in other of Paul's letters. Uh, he uses that, you know, a number of times. Uh, Colossians 1, 4, and 5, faith and love that sprang from hope, he says. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, uh, we remember your work produced by faith, your labor produced by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. So these things you know, pop up, 1 Corinthians 5, 8, 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. These are essential Christian virtues for the entire church age, whereas prophecy, knowledge, and tongues are not and had but a narrow shelf life, so to speak. But the love is the greatest since it will last beyond the second coming of Christ. Both faith and love will be replaced by sight. So, uh, so love's going to last, but... But uh, faith and hope won't be around. We won't have faith and hope, hope when Christ comes. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, a passage that's mostly been misunderstood. Therefore, we are always confident, I know, that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, you know, the King James says, we walk by faith, not by sight. You know, we walk by faith, not by sight. 
And uh, that has been generally, that phrase has been taken to mean you and I should walk by faith. That is, that's the duty of Christians, to walk by faith. We should walk by faith. And they point to this verse. But that, this verse doesn't, doesn't say that. <laughs> See, this verse says, Paul is talking here about, in 2 Corinthians 5, he starts off by saying, what would happen if my earthly body were destroyed? Well, I have a future resurrection body eternal in the heavens. But, he says, we're confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body right now, we're away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. That's, that's what's our present situation. We live by faith. We don't see the Lord. We can't see Him. We, we trust Him by faith. It doesn't say we should live by faith or we, we, you know, it's our duty. It says we do. All of us do. All of us live by faith because we don't see the Lord. <laughs> Uh, we are confident, I say, prefer to be away from the body and home with the Lord and see Him. So one day faith will be gone. Now, okay, in another sense, apart from this verse, it is true we should live by faith in the sense of we should live our Christian lives trusting God. You know, so if you say, you know, if I say to you, hey, you need to walk by faith, there's nothing wrong with that. You should walk, you should live by faith. Walk means live. Remember in the, 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 the Greek the word uh, walk means it's a metaphor for living. You should live your life by trusting God. And, and, you know. So there is that sanctification part of it where we are supposed to live by faith and walk by faith. But that's not what this verse is talking about. <laughs> this verse is talking about the fact that we can't see the Lord, so all of us have to trust Him by faith. That's just the state we're in. you know. And that's what Paul's talking about here. One day faith will be gone. We won't have to trust the Lord, but we'll see Him. We will know Him. And we won't have to worry about hope. We won't have any more hope. We'll be there. <laughs> we won't. So faith and hope, but love, it'll still continue throughout eternity. There won't be any diminution of that in that sense. Uh, love is the greatest since it will last beyond the second coming of Christ. Faith and hope will be replaced by sight. Uh, so uh, that's Romans eight talks about uh, hope. You know, um, for in our hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes for what he's already has? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait patiently for it. So we hope because we don't have it. We hope means we confidently expect it. We're, we're hoping, we're confidently expecting it, but we won't need hope <laughs> when Christ comes. We won't need any hope. We won't need any faith in the sense of we'll see Christ and you know, we'll have the completion of all that. We don't, but now we do have to, so we do have to walk by faith. It's just not what that verse, <laughs> it's not talking about living your Christian life by faith in the sense of trusting God's promises, which we have to do. I hope you're getting my point here. This verse is, is really talking about Paul saying, uh, right now, uh, that is, if my body was gone, then I would be with Christ. But right now, I'm not with Christ. And so I have to, all of us have to live by faith and not by sight. We can't see the Lord. We, we just have to trust Him and so forth. All right, so some arguments here for cessationism. So there are arguments, I think some pretty good arguments. Uh, but this is a big topic because um, uh, Protestants, for the most part, Protestants have been cessationists. Most of the church through history, I mean, if you look at church history, if you read people who wrote in the second century, the third century, the fourth century, they all say, uh, that these gifts had passed away, and I'll cite some here, you know. And that was true in the Protestant Reformation. There's always been, in the, in the Roman Catholic Church, has always allowed for all kinds of strange things, you know. People with visions and this and that. I saw the Virgin Mary, and, you know, they've always allowed for kind of miraculous things going on and things like that. But Protestants have always been cessationists. That 
changed, you know, pretty much, as I mentioned, around 1900 when Pentecostalism came in, tongue-speaking came in, and right at 1900 and ever since. So our, you know, our, our uh, Pentecostal friends, our charismatic friends, they don't, they don't believe in cessationism, but, but uh, I do. So here's some arguments. The common belief of all Protestants for the 20th century was that miraculous gifts found in the early church had ceased at the end of the first century. For 1,800 years, no one claimed to have the gift of tongues or healing. On the other hand, there is no single verse that teaches cessationism unless it's 1 Corinthians 13.10. You know, that verse we just said, I don't think it does. But, you know, you can find people, uh, even people that teach at the seminary, Detroit Seminary, who think it does, you know, but I've never, I've never personally been persuaded by it which I doubt, but that does not mean cessationism is not true. Even if that verse doesn't prove it, I think there are other passages. Uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is a first principle of the Christian faith, yet there is no single verse that teaches the Trinity. So we can believe things to be true, even though there's no verse that says, you know, uh, that that's the actual case. We, we combine Bible verses and teaching. So we should first note that though Paul performed miracles... They seem to be fading toward the end of his life. Seem to be, I say. In 1 Timothy 5.23, he told Timothy, Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illness. Paul did not heal Timothy, but prescribed a medic medicinal treatment. In 2 Timothy 4.20, Paul says he left Trophimus sick in Miletus. That's, that does seem a little strange, at least, uh, you know. Because we know Paul healed other people, you know, but he left him there. So, you know, these are not absolute. They're just, I'm just saying, they might be indications that these things are fading, maybe. The writer of Hebrews asked his readers, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So this writer seems to be kind of a second-generation Christian in the sense of the salvation was first announced by the Lord and confirmed to us, the apostles, by those who heard Him. I didn't hear Him, but those who heard And God testified to, to it, that is to the apostles, by signs, wonders, various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. So the impression is that I think these miracles are with the apostles, with the first generation of Christians, and so forth. I say historically we know that miraculous gifts ceased in the church. I say we know, at least that's what the church writers say. So John Chrysostom was a very famous preacher, uh, uh, bishop of, of, of Constantinople, he says, he says, commenting on 1 Corinthians 12, this whole piece is very obscure. He wrote commentaries on like just a lot of the Bible there. But the obscurity is produced by our ignorance of the facts referred to and by their cessation being such as then used to occur, used to occur, but now no longer take place. So here's a guy writing, you know, uh, you know, in the fourth century saying these things have passed. We don't, we don't see them now, you know. Augustine, very famous church father, in the earliest times the Holy Spirit fell on them that believe and spoke with tongues, which they had not learned, as the Spirit gave them utterance. These were signs adapted to the time, for there was this betoking of the Holy Spirit in all tongues to show that the gospel of God was to run through all the tongues over the whole earth. This thing was done for a sign and it passed away. So we go to the Reformation, Martin Luther. In the early church, the Holy Spirit was sent forth in visible form. He descended upon Christ in the form of a dove and in the likeness of fire upon the apostles and other believers. Acts 2 he's talking about. And the likeness of fire upon the apostles, uh, Acts 2. This visible outpouring of the Holy Spirit was necessary to the establishment of the early church, as were both the miracles that accomplished the gift of the Holy Ghost. Paul explained the purpose of these miraculous gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 14, 22. Tongues are for a sign not to them that believe, 
but to them that believe not. Once the church had been established and properly advertised by these miracles, the whole the visible appearance of the Holy Ghost ceased. That's Martin Luther. So I was just going to say more about the Pentecostals. So when the Pentecostal movement first started, the way they got around this, and I'm sure a lot still do, is they said that they went to a verse in the Old Testament that talks about the early rain and the latter rain, and they said that well, that was the, that was the, there was this gap. It's true that they did cease, but God brought them back, you know, in 1900. Now, I don't know, I'm not an expert on Pentecostalism. I hear some charismatics say they never ceased, but uh, in the early Pentecostalism, they tended to say, yeah, they did cease, but they've come back. Uh, Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, this famous preacher, New England preacher in the First Great Awakening, in the days of his that is Jesus' flesh, his disciples had a measure of the miraculous gifts of the Spirit being enabled thus to teach and to work miracles. But soon after that, the canon of Scripture being completed when the Apostle John had written the book of Revelation, which he wrote not long before his death, these miraculous gifts were no longer continued in the church. For they were now completed and established written revelation of the mind and will of God, whereas God had fully recorded a standing and all-sufficient rule for the church in all ages. Charles Spurgeon, famous British Baptist preacher of the 19th century, they had attained the summit of piety. They had received the powers of the world to come, not miraculous gifts which are denied us in these days, but all those powers with which the Holy Spirit endows a Christian. The works of the Holy Spirit, which are at this time vouchsafed to the church of the God are every way as valuable as those early, earlier miraculous gifts which have departed from us. The work of the Holy Spirit by which men are quickened from their death in sin is not inferior to the power with which men are made with tongues. Now, I mean, this doesn't absolutely prove, but it's just saying they didn't see them. They didn't have them in their age. They, they, were, they were saying they had ceased because they were not prevalent or around in their days. B.B. Uh, Warfield famous uh, Princeton theologian. Um, These gifts were part of the credentials of the apostles as authoritative agents in founding the church. Their function thus confined them to distinctively the apostolic church and they necessarily passed away with it. So I say here, periods of miracles have been rare in history. Moses... You know, we have really in Moses the first really period of miracles pretty much in the Bible. Joshua, Moses and Joshua. And then we don't seem to have any until we get to Elijah, Elisha. And then we get to Jesus and the apostles. There's these big gaps, it seems like, in the Old Testament at least record. When I say that the miraculous gifts have ceased, I'm not saying that God cannot do miracles in this age. He may. But if so, they are probably very rare. Miracles were primarily intended as a confirmation of God's special messengers and their message. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.12, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. So that would seem to indicate that not every Christian was doing signs, wonders, and miracles. If they're marks of a true apostle, then they're limited to a certain number of people, at least in Paul's day of apostles. After the messengers had brought their messages, they would no longer be needed. At least that's how we cessationists see the situation. In Ephesians 2.20, Paul says, the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The apostles and prophets laid the foundation of the church in the first century. These gifts would no longer be necessary once the church was established in the first century and the canon of scripture was complete. Paul indicates that the apostles were the mediators of miraculous gifts, signs, wonders, and miracles. Miracles were not the signs of a true believer, but a true apostle, which means that they were to be found and associated with apostolic ministry under an apostolic umbrella, so to speak. The fact that the apostolate ceased would also seem to lead to the conclusion 
that the signs of an apostle must likewise have ceased. Also, the ceasing of the apostolate suggests that all forms of special revelation like prophecy and tongues have ceased. Direct revelation, direct divine revelation in the early church has always, was always channeled through apostles, either directly or by apostolic influence. So anyway, that's the case for cessationism, or at least one way to make the case for that particular view. But admittedly, it's not convincing to our Pentecostal friends. You know, they, they, you know they're very strong in their belief and the gifts and so forth. Um, well, let's look at the superiority of prophecy. That's chapter 14. And that's what Paul wants to get to, to show it's, this is more important than tongues. You're putting too much emphasis on tongues. Now that Paul has commended the excellence of the way of love, the Corinthians should be able to accept the teaching of the present passage, namely that the showy gift of tongues with which the Corinthians seem to be fascinated is inferior to the more useful gift of prophecy in the gathering of the church. Paul begins with a general affirmation of the superiority of prophecy to other, the other gifts and then follows with a comparison of tongues and prophecy, showing the latter to be preferable, that is prophecy. Prophecy is preferable because it's always intelligible. But that is not the case with tongues, which requires an additional gift of interpretation or translation. The purpose of the gifts is edification of the church, and that means prophecy being immediately understandable will always be superior to the tongues. To tongues. The noun edification and edify are used seven times in chapter 14 and are the key theme that these gifts are meant for the edification of the church and it should be obvious to anyone that prophecy is more edifying than tongues is. Well, let's look at that. The affirmation of the general superiority of prophecy. He says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Paul begins his discussion with a summary of chapter 13, follow the way of love. Love is a quality that should be growing in the way life of every Christian. As long as Christians are developing in love, it's also appropriate for them to eagerly desire. This is the Greek word zelao that I mentioned in 1231. Again, it, plural seems to be, to be zealous for something. The Corinthians as a church are to be zealous or eager for spiritual gifts, but especially prophecy. With this phrase, Paul outlines the basic content of this section, namely that in connection with, with the problem that had developed in Corinth, the gift of prophecy was more desirable than tongues. So in order to prove that, that it's more desirable, he's going to give a comparison here uh, of tongues and prophecy, showing the latter to be superior to the former, that prophecy is superior to tongues. He says, first of all, number one, Prophecy will benefit believers more than will tongues. And he directly states that in verses 2 through 5. Verse 2, For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. Paul uh, explains the inadequacy of tongues. Uninterpreted tongues have no value for people in the assembly. For as Paul says, no one understands them. Now this verse is understood by charismatics to mean that people cannot understand these tongues because they're not actual human languages in contrast to those in Acts. So you know, that's the standard interpretation of our charismatic friends is that, remember I said when I talked about it, the beginning of the, of the Pentecostal movement in 1900 when the tongues was first spoken in Kansas City, then in uh, Texas, and then in California, that all of these people said they are speaking in foreign languages. Um, in Kansas City, they, they claimed, I've, I should have, I've got newspaper headlines I could have brought, but they claimed they were speaking Chinese and stuff. And I mentioned earlier, they sent missionaries, actually. They sent some missionaries out uh, with the gift of tongues 
because they thought that they could just bypass mission, you know, learning a foreign language would be a great thing, you know. And it didn't work out, obviously. It didn't work out. So no, no. Uh, now, I think charismatics that I've read will say there could be some foreign languages interspersed, but mostly it's not a foreign language that's, that's being spoken. And that the book of Acts was foreign languages, but 1 Corinthians was not. So these are two different gifts, the, 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 the tongues in, in, um, in 1 Corinthians are different, even though it's the same word, you know, and even though, um, um, you know, Luke is writing Acts chapter 2 and Paul, his com friend, is writing this, you know, Glossa. So it's difficult to see how that they're two different things, but... This is the universal opinion, I think, pretty much of Pentecostals today is that, and on the surface, this verse kind of sounds like they might be right here. For anyone who speaks in a tongue doesn't speak to people, okay, they're, but to God. No one understands them. So, but I say, uh, I say this verse is understood by charismatics to mean that people cannot understand these tongues because they are not actual human languages in contrast to those in Acts. But such an interpretation fails to comprehend the context, I think, of Paul's statement. Paul means that no person in the Corinthian assembly would normally understand the language spoken by the tongue speakers since it would be a foreign to the Corinthians who spoke Greek. So, I mean, that would be true, you know, if somebody comes into inner, to our church and gets up and starts preaching in German, you know. Uh, he would be speaking to God, <laughs> but he wouldn't be speaking to any of us because not many of us, I assume, know German or we might pick some obviously strange, uh, less common language, you know. Um, so um, I think that's what's going on here. These people, these, this was, these were all Greek speakers. They didn't speak other languages. Um, so they wouldn't have understood anything but Greek here. Uh, as we've already noted, there is absolutely no example, either in the New Testament itself or in all of Greek literature outside the New Testament, where the word tongue is used of unintelligible, incoherent gibberish, which the charismatic movement claims is biblical tongues. A person speaking, say, the demotic language of Egypt as on the day of Pentecost. So the language of Egypt in the first century was called, remember they had a hieroglyphics, those hieroglyphics on the walls, and then over time it evolved in what's called demotic, which is, um, and that was what was spoken in the first century. So a person speaking in the Egyptian language, the demotic language, as on the day of Pentecost, in the Corinthian simile, would only be understood by God himself. But the purpose of tongues or any spiritual gift was not to communicate with God. I see the fact that Paul says the tongue speaker does not speak to people but to God is used by charismatics to argue for a private devotional use of tongues outside of the assembly, one that is not edifying to the assembly but edifying somehow to the individual. But a believer cannot be edified and God glorified by a continual repetition of words whose meaning is unknown to the speaker. I don't believe, I'll never believe that. <laughs> edification, being built up in the faith, spiritual growth, that's what edification is, cannot bypass the believer's mind. You can't just be, you can't just be edified without going through your mind. Something, <laughs> you've got to have something in your mind to change you, to build you up. One must... Uh, understand in order to be edified. It doesn't come by some sort of osmosis. Um, in other words, a Christian who came from Egypt and didn't speak English but spoke Arabic, you know, he could come here, this Christian could come here for years, come every Sunday. He could be in our class every Wednesday night but he would receive no edification. <laughs> you know, just because he's sitting there hearing the Bible preached, you know, or taught, that wouldn't edify him because he, it's not, nothing's entering the mind. He wouldn't, he wouldn't understand. So 
I don't think it's possible that Plus you he could understand with his own ears. <laughs> What's that? Uh, you know, like back when uh, earlier in the before Corinthians, they in Acts they heard it in their own tongue. They heard it with their own ears. No, it's not what Acts is saying. It Acts says they spoke. The apostles spoke. They spoke the languages. That well, they it, heard it in their own tongue. I well, they heard it in their own tongue because they were from various places. They came to Pentecost. All these people who spoke different languages came to Pentecost. They spoke besides, you know, they, they spoke a foreign language. Right. So they heard the foreign language because it was being spoken in their language. It wasn't a miracle of hearing. It was a miracle of speaking. Okay. And I always... Yeah, people think it's a miracle of hearing, but it says... It says in the text very clearly, the apostles spoke in these languages, spoke these languages. Uh, and it says they heard them speaking in their own language. You might think, well, that means some sort of translation miracle. But it wasn't a translation miracle. It was a speaking miracle. They spoke these languages. And, and the, the amazing thing for these people was when you, you know, if, 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 you know, if, if this was working, a guy who comes to our to our church and only speaks Arabic and Ken gets up to speak and if he understands Ken speaking in Aramaic there you know then that's really strange you know it, it just seems so confusing to me because they came from all over the world to be there at that time they did they did and so they're all speaking in a different language right but yet when um, Peter spoke they heard it in their language, not, you know... No, these, these people would be bilingual. So you've got Jews who are coming for the day of Pentecost. Right. And they have their own native languages wherever they're from. You know, they come from all over the world. Uh, and so they have their own native languages and they don't expect to hear their own native language uh, being spoken in Jerusalem. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, they'd be thinking that was being spoken Hebrew to them. What's that? They would think it was Hebrew language, right? Or if it was Greek at that time. Well, yeah, Aramaic, yeah, but yeah, right. But they, they could, they would be able to understand. It's just like somebody who's bilingual today. You know, my point is the text is very clear that the apostles spoke those languages, not that the apostles, not that the apostles got up and spoke one language, and it was translated, the apostles spoke in those foreign languages. You just have to look at that text again. Look at Acts 2 again there and read that again and think about this. <laughs> no, it's, it's not confusing. <laughs> you just got in your mind that it was a translation miracle. And a lot of people think it's a translation. It's, it's a common view that, well, this was a translation miracle. These people came and the Bible, the, what, and, the, and when, when, when Peter got up to spoke, there was no miracle there. He was just speaking one language. But they could understand that language because they had come to Jerusalem. They were bilingual, so maybe trilingual or something like that. I mean, Paul spoke Greek, but he could understand Aramaic too when he was in Jerusalem, you know. So that's, what we, that, that's the whole point of these people from all these foreign countries is that they all spoke different languages where they're from Egypt, wherever they're from, from Arabia, they all spoke these native languages. And the fact that they came and then they didn't expect to hear their languages, that's because the apostles were speaking in, in these foreign tongues. That's what tongues is. Tongues is speaking in a foreign language. It's not a translation miracle. Right. And that's why but when they came from all over, if it was a translation of tongues, then how did the Ethiopians hear it and the Chinese or whoever the other, you know, foreign? How did they hear? How did they hear it in like their own tongue, their own language? Well, they heard it because it was being spoken in their language. It just seemed like it should have been wrote a little different. For people like <laughs> no, I'll read it to you. I can see we're not going to get around here until I read it to you. <laughs> Talking to a guy that's had a lot of hits to the head. Oh, I know. No, I believe you. No, it's it's a common view. Your view is is not is not an uncommon view. Uh, it's it's very very common. Uh, 
but there is there's a couple of verses here that that um, so it says um, um, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now it doesn't say who that all is, but I would say that it's the apostles, but I could prove that by going back in context. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. They spoke in other languages. Yeah. So there wasn't one language being spoken. There was many languages being spoken. But languages that they had not been trained in. Right, right. Yeah. That's the gift of tongues. Yeah. So they were speaking, and all of them began to speak in other tongues. Now listen further here. Staying in Jerusalem or God-fearing from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, the crowd came together, bewilderment. Each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these all Galileans? How is it we hear them in our native language, Parthia and so forth? Um, and um, how, do, how do we hear them? How, how is it we each one of us hears them in our own language? How are, how are these Galileans who are speaking to us in our own language? Um, however, some made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. So they, they heard, the reason they said that is because the people, the local period, people who were there, who didn't speak these foreign languages, they heard the apostles speak these languages and they thought these people have had too much wine, they're gibberish or something. They're, 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 what are they speaking? I don't know, we don't understand it like that. So you've got two groups. You've got the local, local Judeans and then you've got these people you know, Cretans, Arabs, Phrygia, Egypt, Libya near Cyrene, Cappadocia, you got all kinds of people there. So more likely it's a speaking miracle. That's what tongues is, is speaking a foreign language. Okay. Well, we cleared up that heresy. I mean, that's good. We got, we got him on the right track here. You know, we don't, we don't, we don't want, you know. <laughs> This is something Jesus won't have to correct in heaven, which is good. You know, I mean, you know, it saves a lot of trouble, a lot of time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, uh, so let's see, where are we at? Uh, say, um, let's see. Um, so uh, I say the reason why the uninterpreted tongue speaker does not uh, speak to people but to God is because the people in the Corinthian assembly would have only stood, understood the Greek language. Also, the idea of self-education is contrary to the very purpose of all the spiritual gifts, which is for the common good. That's repeated over and over again. The word mysteries in Paul's writings always refer to truths about God and his program that were for a time hidden but are now being made known. Tongues, if interpreted, were capable of communicating new revelation from God, as did prophecy. Paul says in verse 3, But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. Well, that seems to contradict what I just said that tongues can't edify. How do tongues edify if you don't understand? Well, I'll, I'll get to that in just a moment. What the prophet speaks is summed up in the word strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. The word strengthening is the word for edification. Um, and he prophesies, speaks of it for their strengthening. That's the word that we've been translating, edification, spiritual growth, the theme word of the chapter. The reason for spiritual gifts, according to Paul, would not be, could not be clearer, the edification of God's people. Uninterpreted tongues, as they're being practiced by the Corinthians, are inferior, inherently inferior to prophecy, since as Paul says in verse 4, prophecy edifies the church. But anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. When Paul says that uninterpreted tongues edifies only the speaker, even this self-edification should not be seen as a virtue. Normally, the word edify is used in a positive sense. You know, build somebody up, edify somebody. But as we saw in 8.10, it can be used ironically 
are sarcastically in a negative sense. Here as it is in 8.10. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened, that's the word, edified to eat what is sacrificed to idols. The word emboldens our word edify. The weak believer would be built up or edified toward a sinful activity. So the point is, Paul is using that word in an ironic, in a sarcastic sense when he says, if someone sees you, oh, they'll be edified all right. Oh, yeah, they'll be edified. They'll be built up to do a sinful thing, you know. So the word edify, build up here, can have this ironic sense. I think that's what we have here. Uh, that if the one who speaks in a tongue, they're just sort of building themselves up. They're just hyping themselves up. They're just promoting themselves. They're not helping the church anyway. Um, when Paul says that the person speaking in tongues is said to edify themselves, the broader context also suggests that Paul is not commending the use of tongues as a means of self-edification because that would contra contradict the purpose of spiritual gifts. They're given for the common good, 12.7, to edify the church. Remember, excel in those gifts that build up the church, 14.12. Paul will go on to argue that in this chapter that intelligibility is essential to edification in verses 13 through 19, which raises doubts raises doubts about the incomprehensible private tongues as a means of self-edification. If intelligibility is essential to edification, <clears throat> then when the church is assembled, why would unintelligibly be acceptable privately if Paul means that the one who speaks in tongues edifies themselves in a positive sense? So that's my point, is that <clears throat> Charismatics believe that <coughs> these tongues, even though they're not translated, if you're speaking in tongues in prayer or private, you know, it's a spiritually good thing. You're building yourself up. You're, excuse me, you're edifying yourself. But I don't think that's true because um, Paul says that <clears throat> in order to edify, it has to be intelligible. It's got to go through the mind, as I said before. If intelligibility is essential to edification when the church is assembled, as you'll say in verses 16 through 19, you'll make a big case of that. Intelligibility is essential. Then just speaking in tongues, even privately, does not edify. In other words, if uninterpreted tongues cannot edify the church, then how can tongues edify the individual privately apart from comprehension? Or to state the question in reverse, if unintelligible tongues can edify the individual, why not the whole church? And Paul won't allow that. The idea of incomprehensible tongues as a private edifying prayer runs counter to Paul's argument as a whole and the corporate purpose and function of spiritual gifts. Uninterpreted tongues that edify only the speaker is not, as, is not a, a virtue, uh, not seen as a virtue, I guess I should say there, but... Um, is an instance of self-exaltation that meets with Paul's disapproval should be avoided, I think. <clears throat> so he says, uh, verse 5, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather that you prophesy. But I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so the church may be edified. Paul now <clears throat> repeats the theme of this section in different words. Paul affirms that the gift of tongues are very worthwhile, nothing inherently wrong with tongues, but his preference is for prophecy. The one who prophesies is greater because the assembled church always receives edification from prophecy, but only if there's an interpretation for what is spoken in a foreign language can the church be edified. Well, now, uh, Paul uh, supports this proposition <clears throat> about the fact that Prophecy superior by elaborating the link between intelligibility and edification. It's got to be intelligible. You've got to understand to be edified, to be built up. Uh, without understanding, there's no edification. Verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, I come 
if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? So Paul contrasts the usefulness of tongues with that of intelligible types of speech gifts. If he were to come back to Corinth and speak in a language unknown to them, perhaps Hebrew or Aramaic, there would be no benefit to the Corinthians. Only if he spoke in a language they understood, Greek in their case, <clears throat> would they profit. It might come in the form of revelation from God, a word of knowledge, prophecy, or some other word of instruction. <clears throat> so this question, what good will I be to you? You plural, the church. That's the one that should govern the use of all spiritual gifts in the assembly. What good is it to the church as a whole? Verse 7, even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, <coughs> excuse me, such as the pipe or harp, how uh, will anyone know what the tune is being played unless there's a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, what will be, who will get ready for battle? <coughs> Paul now illustrates the need for intelligibility with the example of musical instruments. Music is composed to convey a, a message, a tune, <clears throat> that can be recognized by a particular sequence of notes. And a trumpet can only issue battle commands if the tune is intelligible, understood by the soldiers. So again, understanding is the key here in all this kind of stuff. So it's with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You will just be speaking into the air. <clears throat> so Paul ties the previous illustration of the Corinthian situation. So it is with you. If the Corinthians do not speak in recognizable words with their physical tongue, in their case Greek, they will be speaking in the, to the air, not really communicating. Of course, all this is a criticism of speaking in tongues without having an interpretation of translation. He says, undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what something someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreign to me. Paul has made his point about the need for intelligibility in order for gifts to be useful. But in the case the Corinthians have not gotten the point, he continues with another illustration involving normal human languages. Paul did not know how many languages there were in the world, but what he did know was that all languages, including the spiritual gift of tongues or languages, communicate real meaning. Otherwise, sounds being uttered are not a language. But if one does not know the language being spoken, then there's no communication possible. Nothing can be shared. So it is with you. Since you're eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. So the illustration of not understanding the foreigner is like the situation in Corinth church when someone speaks in tongues, there's no one to translate. There's no benefit, no edification of the church. <clears throat> Therefore, the church should tone down its enthusiasm for tongues and give precedence to the gifts like prophecy that convey truth that's immediately intelligible and thus always able to build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. Because tongues are languages that the Corinthians will not immediately understand because they're not only Greek speakers themselves, they should pray <clears throat> that they should also recognize, exercise the gift of interpretation. As we noted earlier, the word translated interpret is the common word meaning translate from one language to another. Like this example, now there wasn't Joppa, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means, that's the word interpret here, same word, interpret, translate. Uh, the fact that tongues could be translated or interpreted, again, shows that they're real language. It's the word for translation. Uh, Otherwise, if they can't be translated, then they're not really, uh, if they're not, you know, um, then you're just creating meaning. You know, you're just, if they're just gibberish, you're just creating meaning by what, what this interpretation. If they're real languages, you're translating what the speaker is saying. Verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit praise, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I say? I will pray with my spirit, but I'll also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, 
but I also pray, uh, sing with my understanding. Paul now explains for why the speaker in tongues should pray for the interpretation. A tongue speaker without interpretation was ineffective in producing benefit in the lives of others. His spirit prays, but his mind is unfruitful. When Paul refers to my spirit, he could be thinking of what he just said in verse 12 about the gifts of the spirit. That is, he might be referring to the exercise of his spiritual gift of tongues. Or my spirit might be referring to Paul's innermost being. In either case, his mind, that is his understanding, would not benefit from an uninterpreted language. Paul's example is hypothetical and negative. What if I were to pray in a tongue only and not follow my prayer with an interpretation? Seems to be what he's getting at. Clearly the apostle does not regard this praying in a tongue as a legitimate spiritual discipline because his mind is unfruitful. Would Paul himself engage in such a practice that there has no possibility of education? Clearly not. Rather, Paul says, I will pray with my spirit, but I also pray with my understanding. Whether praying or singing or whatever activity communication takes place in the assembly, intelligibility is the key fact factor if the church is to be edified. Verse 16, otherwise, when you're praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the possession of inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you're saying? You're giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. Paul continues the illustration of someone speaking in tongues, but shifts to the second person plural and uses the Corinthians as the example rather than himself. By otherwise, Paul means if you're praising God in the Spirit, that is, with the gift of tongues, then an inquirer in the assembly will not know what you're saying and thus be unable to say amen. Again, Paul's major complaint about their speaking in tongues is that they are doing it without tongues being interpreted. An inquirer refers to a person who finds himself in the role of the novice when someone prays in a tongue. This is probably a new believer into the assembly who is just experiencing tongue speaking for the first time. Since they can't make any sense of uninterpreted tongues, they can't say amen. And of course, no one in the assembly is edified, as he says. Let's finally look at verse 18. I thank God that I, would, <clears throat> that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I'd rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul now makes it clear that his lack of enthusiasm for the gift of tongues is not because he didn't possess the gift, speaking in tongues more than any of you, but he did not place the same value on the gift as the Corinthians. Paul preferred to speak five of intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. The apostle was concerned with instruction, edification of the church, and that puts tongue speakers at a disadvantage to other speaking gifts like prophecy. Where did Paul speak in tongues more than the Corinthians? It's argued by charismatics that Paul was an avid tongue speaker in private. But this would run completely counter to Paul's argument throughout the chapter 12 through 14 that spiritual gifts are for the purpose of benefiting others rather than for the one exercising the gift. In the light of that emphasis, Paul could hardly have set himself up as an example of claimed superiority on the basis of his own selfish private use of one of the gifts. That was the very thing he was combating among the Corinthians. The private use of something intended for others is certainly nothing to boast about. The purpose of tongues was a public one, and as we'll see in 1420 through 25, it must, uh, as we'll see in there, it must then be in connection with a public ministry of some kind that Paul found occasion to exercise his gift of tongues. As the missionary apostle to the Gentiles, he frequently encountered new linguistic groups in his travels. Authenticating signs accompanied his ministry and tongues was one of those signs. Remember? Uh, he says in Romans 15, 18, 19, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done by the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit. So from Jerusalem all the way to Riliacum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel. And we read 2 Corinthians 2, 12, 12, 
the marks of an apostle, or these signs and miracles. So I think, you know, it's Paul is speaking in tongues when he is out on his missionary journey as a, as a, see, I say, upon hearing a foreign speaker, a foreigner speak their own language without ever studying it, the listener would perceive the apostle's miraculous demonstration and be ready to give attention to the divinely verified presentation of the gospel. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll stop there. And sorry we didn't have time to get our way through, but we do have the notes there. And if you'd like to read through, you can do that. Thank you so much for your faithful attendance this semester. Thank you. And, uh, we endured to the end. <laughs> and you know what the Bible says, he who endures to the end will be saved. So, yeah. <laughs>